0: most original and creative talent. In our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Good evening. This is Orson Welles.
1: No, oh, no, it isn't the breeze.
2: Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses.
3: Well, Jello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm joined with Catherine Fuller-Seeley and our good friend Terry Phillips uh, from Imagine Air That uh, Just wonderful. imagine air theatercom I think. And uh, just brilliant shows. If you want to hear modern takes on radio, old-time radio shows, sort of a suspense meets Twilight Zone sort of thing. I mean, my goodness, they're great episodes. Western coming up soon, which it'll be really neat to hear that Western. Uh, anyway, uh, this, ep- this week's episode of Orson Welles is just packed with uh, interesting things. His whole, and you'll see it over the next few weeks too as we plays out, his whole getting questions from the audience and then they can win themselves a leer. What is it Lear? Yeah, Lear. Uh yeah. radio that they give them out. And uh he says, I I'm trying to remember which episode. I think it's actually next week's episode. He says this, but I think it's interesting that he says it. He goes, you know, the way to get on my show is not by saying how wonderful I am in, in the letters, because I'm sure that's what he got. Just tons of oh, we just love listening to you, blah blah blah. He said, No. It, give me something that's got some meat to it or whatever and and we'll present it or, or criticize me you know and we'll present it but uh just the questions he the questions he gets to, to today is just insanely uh interesting and the way it's phrased and the way he responds to it but we'll go into all of that as we go but let's uh go over to uh, i guess we'll go to terry first terry what were some of the things you noticed in this
4: episode and things uh, I, I want to start with, uh, you mentioned Lear Radio. I just want to start with a, a, uh, an explanation uh, for those who might not know. Uh, this, this product, this radio, which was a very sophisticated um, combination, radio, television, and recording device, uh, was invented by Bill Lear, who founded Lear Jet, the, oh, uh, the wow. business Jet um, manufacturing yeah. company which is now part of uh, Bombardier Aerospace it's it's a Canadian owned company now but um, he also he was a, a uh, an electronics and an electrical inventor and one of the things he invented was a device that our younger listeners might not have even heard of let alone seen which was the eight track tape uh, player. Wow. There were prior to way before uh, CDs and DVDs and way before cassette tapes, there was this thing called an eight track and it was, it was rather large and it was an endless loop tape. So you didn't never had to rewind it. You put it in the the receiver and push the play button and there was no rewind button. It just went in one direction. And it had eight tracks of music. So it could store a lot of, uh, of music or speech. Uh, in in um, professional radio, there was a, a device called a cart, a cart machine. And it was very much like an 8-track. You would record commercials or news or whatever on this device. And it, again, it was an endless loop. It went in one direction. I think there was a, a connection between these two. I know Lear didn't invent the cart machine. That was another another guy. Mm-hmm. But you know, it all, they all came out around the same time. And so now, Bill and Lear was, you this about was really tracks. quite inventive because we had one in our, in our uh, one of our cars, we had an eight track
3: and wow. listen to it. It was, it was really an interesting listening experience to, to ex- experiment with eight track and what you could do with it. But I think we always thought of it, I believe as four tracks because the eight tracks, I, I would assume are because it's stereo. So really you, you can, you can't switch between eight different, songs let's say at a time but you could switch between four and so if you didn't like what song was playing you would click to the next track it wouldn't like take you to the beginning of a song it would take you to wherever in the tape it was on that That's next right. song and so you would have That's four right. songs that were essentially simultaneously playing but the reader would only read one of them and you'd choose one two three or four and so it was That's a great. way to hop around and listen to other songs, sort of, but not like a CD player where you go, okay, I want to listen to track 17 and now I'm going to listen to that and you hear the beginning of the song. and things. Right. So it was just a, but, a real different listening experience. And I just remember always hopping around and you'd be like, oh, I missed the beginning of that. We're close to the middle, and you but you couldn't go back. And so you had to listen to that. <laughs> or you had to listen to the whole thing again until you looped around. Again. So it was crazy.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when the Lear Company sponsored the Orson Welles commentaries, I think it says something about the audience because this was not, you know, a middle class or, oh, uh, you know, a,
1: Oh a, yeah, I found that their their big their big um, floor model cost five hundred dollars, which is eight thousand dollars in today' money. Oh yeah, so right. you're absolutely right. They they ain't going for popcorn eaters. So. Right. Well, I will so say I think this:
3: that, he does talk either in this episode, or next episode, it, it, the first time they kind of gave prices. And so, uh, th- they said that there's a f- up to the five hundred dollar model, and then down to the desktop whatever model. And I think he says nineteen ninety five for that, which is still pretty expensive for the day, but you know it it's more reasonable. And I assume the nineteen ninety five one is the one they're sending out to people, and not the five hundred dollar model. He never says right. that when they're sending, <laughs> but I do but think this, one this of the says a lot shows, about says, who. They don't send the tape. The one that the tapes, they
4: send a different model. So right, you know. but this this says a lot about um, who Orson Welles is addressing in in these commentaries. And the first thing he he does is is promote a movie that that some of his um, friends and you know former coworkers are in. A Walk in the Sun. It was a uh, World War II movies, came out right after the, the right. war ended, and uh, it was a, kind of a kind of a documentary. Um, I mean, it was a, a docudrama, maybe, is the yeah. right word for it. Um, and uh, the the only other thing that I want to bring up, I know you want to talk about um, his um, commentary about racial tolerance, but um, he, um, he starts by talking about veterans who were protesting to, uh, you know, unemployed veterans who wanted to protest to get better unemployment compensation. But the law at the time was that you would not get compensation if you were unemployed as the result of—never mind if you were involved in—as the result of a strike, this was a very anti-union provision in the law. And Wells clearly was a, a pro-union, pro-labor guy, and uh, so he was standing up for those vets who were not getting compensation for becoming unemployed simply because their company was um, dealing with um, with a, a work stoppage. Right. Uh, The last thing I'll I'll say is that, uh, again, one of his favorite themes was um, uh, phony mentalists or phony uh, mind readers. And he uh, talks about, he makes reference to the Houdini code. Uh, When Harry, before Harry Houdini died, the story is that he and his wife arranged so that if someone said to her after his passing, I can get in touch with Wells in the afterlife, they had a code and he would... Uh, be expecting her to tell him wh- or the, the mentalist yeah. what that code word was that's how they could verify that the the spiritualist was uh, authentic or not and uh, well said that nobody ever cracked right. the Houdini right. code right. and he made reference to a guy named uh, Dunninger the, the amazing Dunninger, Dunninger yeah. who was who a great. shows
1: into- up on a Jack Benny show
4: yes he does yeah, so that was Joseph Dunninger, who was a very, very popular and famous magician, but also one of these guys who tried to debunk phony spirituals. Yes. Yes. Well, Kathy, what were your thoughts on it?
1: Well, thank you. Well, that's, we've got so much to talk about. I just wanted to mention, and thank you, Terry, very much for that. Um, when Orson is talking about the needs of veterans, of returning veterans, Something that young people would absolutely not understand is this desire to own a suit and how difficult it was to get clothing. Um, We live in a, a, what do they call a throwaway fashion, instant fashion. I buy everything from thrift stores anymore. You know, I mean, so my my clothes budget is small and my closet is packed with things, (laughs) but it's a fascinating point to go back and remember both how important a symbolic it was to have a suit, to feel like an appropriate man or an appropriate woman to have a dress. And this also comes down to not only were the returning soldiers desperate to have something to wear, this is just about the time or it would be the year of the new look where the French designers Christian Dior and some of the other designers in newly liberated France were coming up with this radically altered style of dress that took like 10 yards of fabric for those big skirts and the waist waist and the big busts and women all through the 30s and the war years had had to make do with the same clothes and they would literally take a dress and turn take it apart turn the fabric inside out and sew it together again so that maybe if it was a woven fabric or you know i mean some kind so if you could try and make it last twice as long. There were actually riots in, um, in places like New York when the new look came out because um, working class and lower middle class women said, uh, well, husbands uh, uh, rioted because they said, you're, we can't see their knees anymore. Why, why are you got all these long dresses? But the women would say, you have now made everything in my closet obsolete. I cannot make over something I own that was very military style and skinny and no mm-hmm. lapels and all this rationing of fabric right. and such. They said, I can't make that. And there was a lot. of So I just want you to say, this is the fun of studying this stuff, yes. that you can learn a lot about the tensions and hopes of the culture through things like clothing. So well, that's thank why you I for think it's so great
3: me. having both of you, because you bring such interesting perspectives to this. Um, I want to move us to talking about the end of this episode. There are two uh, folks that, that write into him. And the first one is such an interesting worded letter uh, that he got uh, that, that is prettily, openly prejudice against uh, just saying how far do we allow black people and our tolerance of black people to go you know it's like isn't there a point where we shouldn't have to go any further i mean we citizens how much should we put up with with essentially uh then they call them the colored people at that point but that was the correct term the polite term to use uh at the time and orson i thought just as a brilliant job of not tearing the guy apart and not just just Oh, you're obviously a bigot, and blah 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 blah. He really goes and and just starts essentially saying, um, well, first of all, you know, it, the black people are citizens and they should have all the rights of every citizen. And as soon as they're treated like citizens that have the ability to to um, be able to care, have any job and everything, that that they still need more freedoms, more. Um, And to think that this is so many years before the civil rights movement really caught steam in the 50s and the 60s, it uh, is just really refreshing. And certainly when the Lear guys come on and say, oh, we don't uh, necessarily agree with everything that Orson's saying, which they say every week, but in this particular one, they really make it stand out. They really make it, we don't agree with everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just thought it was interesting to hear that the vocal is a little different than usual. Um, but Orson, like I said, does a brilliant job. He does mention on the kinds of people that they might hear in radio, unfortunately, are not going to be this nuanced of a conversation that in radio you might hear about, uh, you know, the, the uh, watermelon eating, uh, craps playing a black person. And that that unfortunately they don't the, the, the black people don't love the fact that they're presented that way, uh, and I thought that was great. And uh, I was I mentioned uh, on our Jack Benny podcast I was going to mention Rochester, and it was the way Rochester was written for many years, um, but but around this time frame they really changed up the way they they portrayed Rochester, and um, and he wasn't portrayed in that same way and they dropped a lot of those pieces that he was known for um and i thought that was great the, the 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 way that jack benny changed in fact they later on had an episode that they grabbed from the 1940 script and used it almost identically and when they did it they got a bunch of letters in saying what are you doing to Rochester? This is not the way we like to see him portrayed. This is not appropriate and that sort of thing. And so they were really careful from then on whenever they grabbed an old script to change the Rochester piece, uh, which I think is fantastic. Then the last letter they play is from a, a person who's blind and it was just neat to see uh, orson's response to that as well he didn't go deep into it or anything but he was just just his heartfelt caring for this human being was pretty awesome and so i think the here last we are, 10 minutes of this episode are the best but terry go
4: ahead here we are 75 years later and you may say nothing has changed uh you may say orson wells was ahead of his time But we are still struggling, still wrestling with many of these same issues. And I'm so glad, Daryl, that you um, chose to um, present these commentaries again, because they're so timely and so revealing of, of where we are as a society and who we are. I agree.
3: I agree. These are perfect for our times and to be listening to these. And like we say, Orson is a timeless figure in the in the in the way he, the things he presents and their issues that we still deal with today so i think with that we will uh close this episode out and just say you are in for a real treat if you like these orsons this is probably one of my favorite ones we've ever aired and next week is equally uh interesting so i think the next few weeks are going to be great and uh we'll just keep moving on so uh without further ado here we have our friend orson wells and his commentaries from 1946. Enjoy. Uh, thank you, guys, and we will head out. Oh, thank you. Orson
0: Welles speaking. Last Sunday, I made you a proposition. I offered to trade you one of the new Lear radios for any letter I use on this program. While well, I've spent most of this week reading my mail, there's enough for 100 broadcasts. First, I want to thank you for a lot of good reading, and then
2: I want to assure you that the offer stands from here on in. We'll get to that in just a minute. America has been waiting a long time for fine new home radios. No one knows this better than Lear, L-E-A-R. And that's why Lear is determined that any radios this company makes shall have every worthwhile advance in radio engineering that it's possible to include. Lear is in a unique position to do this. For even before the years of Lear's concentrated war work... ...this company was making radios... ...that had to have the finest, most advanced design and construction. These were aircraft radios. Now the experience of 16 years of this kind of manufacture... ...is being turned to making Lear radios for your home. One of the advanced features is the new sound-on-tape recording... first announced by Lear just a few weeks ago. This is like wire recording but as many steps ahead of anything that has been done before. At the touch of a switch, you capture children's songs and voices... and all the good times you want to enjoy over and over. These recordings can be used again and again for a lifetime. But any time you don't want to keep what you've recorded... it's erased from the tape just by recording something else. When you see these new sets, you'll know that it was well worthwhile... To wait for the radio with the nameplate Lear. L E A R. Now, back to Orson Welles. Before
0: the letters, I'd like to take a minute for a word about a new movie. It's called A Walk in the Sun. Harry Brown's book, For My Money, was the best writing in our language to come out of the war. And Lewis Milestone's film version is the best war picture to date. It ought to get the Academy Award, but it won't, but that shouldn't stop you from going to see it. And please don't stay away because it's about soldiers. The soldiers are people, real people, and real people are very rarely encountered these days on the screen. To a man in my business, fresh from the plush foxholes of Hollywood, it's very heartening to be able to hail something truthful and warm and good. We've been sleeping through a dreary night of dreams in movie land, and the first faint cockcrow of dawn is worth noting. It's about time we woke up and got back to work. Now, don't get me wrong, I like to laugh and forget my troubles as much as anybody else. But man does not live by ice cream sodas alone. So please do me a favor and go and get your friends to go and see a walk in the sun. It's high time we started proving that the eight-year-old mentality belongs not to the movie audience, but to the movie producer. And now about the letters and the radios. Any letter I use gets the writer a radio, but understand, please, this isn't a contest. Neatness doesn't count in a literary style. There are no judges and no rules. The best letter doesn't win, in other words, since no effort will be made by anybody to decide what the best might be. I'd just like to include some of your opinions on this quarter hour of my opinions, for the use of which I'm paying off with a fine radio, a table model, a five-tube one, made by Lear. Now, I don't want to impose on the generosity of the makers of the Lear radio, and today there are at least three letters I can't resist reading, so I'm making up the difference myself and very gladly. Writes Roy C. Carlson, former United States Marine, Dear Wells, You Want a Letter, and I Want a Radio. Crime authorities say we're in the midst of a post-war crime wave and, in an indirect way, say it's being caused by vets and G.I.s. Well, if a guy can't get a job, a home, or a suit of clothes, what do you think is going through that fellow's mind? Unquote. Mr. Carlson gets his radio. I wish it were as easy for all veterans to get clothes and housing and work. It's just as tough as Mr. Carlson says. Today, six out of eight veterans who go to the United States Employment Service looking for work wind up jobless. 60,000 vets in New York alone are now living on their unemployment compensation. That amounts to $20 a week. For many jobs, ten or a dozen vets come back to claim their veteran's priority. Obviously, only one can exercise it. There simply is no veteran's priority on most jobs. The current wave of strikes has led many vets to discover a hitherto rather unnoticed clause in the GI Bill of Rights. We've pointed it out on this program before. The clause says that veterans cannot collect unemployment benefits if they're unemployed due to a strike in which they participate or are directly interested. My hunch is that that clause was written in in order to turn vets against organized labor. The federal housing authorities ruled that no GI home building loans will be approved for any vet involved in any way in a strike. Do you know anybody today not involved somehow in a strike? What's needed is a permanent long-range housing project on a nationwide basis, but no such project is yet underway. So, vets still sleep in vacant lots and empty sewer pipes, and more and more of them every night. Even vets that have homes are having a hard time getting back to them, so they sleep in vacant lots, too, and in empty sewer pipes. The airlines held most of their eastbound seats for vets for a brief period, but... They stopped doing that on January 15th. Troop trains run many hours, sometimes several days, behind trains carrying regular passengers. So the veterans, finished fighting the Germans and the Japanese, fight here to get on passenger trains so they can get back to the homes they fought to defend. Over the holidays, I heard of several wounded vets struggling along on crutches who were knocked down and trampled underfoot in civilian mobs, madly rushing for trains. One on crutches, his leg in a cast, had a broken leg rebroken in the Washington railway station. He didn't get home for Christmas. He went back to the hospital. And when vets finally do get home, if they have a home, the first thing they want to do is get out of uniform. But now that, too, is getting to be impossible. Ex-GIs have to compete for suits with men who never got out of civvies and who simply want to add one more suit to their wardrobes. Couldn't vets be given a priority, definitely entitling them to purchase at least one suit of clothes? Just one? When a vet does get home, if he can find a home, he often wants to go into business for himself. He's heard that veterans are supposed to get priority on obtaining surplus war property. He tries to buy some, a truck, a desk, a file cabinet. He doesn't get it. A senator complained the other day that he has yet to hear of a single G.I. who has managed to buy a surplus army truck. Meanwhile, thousands have been sold to establish business concerns... run by men who spent the war piling up the cash on war contracts... to buy fleets of trucks to make more cash on peace contracts. So it looks like the veteran is going to have to... clothe his body in his khaki-colored underwear, put on his uniform hoist up his duffel bag again and go back into the army... where at least he has a cot in the barracks to sleep on. On the other hand, there's still the United States old soldier's home. Well, since the war's over, there's been a tremendous boom throughout the country... in the spiritualist and fortune-telling rackets. On this program, I've been trying to expose the racketeers. They're costing the public too much money... and inflicting too much real personal harm to be tolerated any longer... Now, I've no wish to attack any man's religious beliefs. I'm after the crooks who fatten off those beliefs. Today, a Lear radio goes to a devout and sincere spiritualist, Mr. Edward W. Woods, whose letter is too long for me to read, but which quotes one Arthur Ford to the effect that he, Mr. Ford, gave Mrs. Houdini the code she and her husband agreed upon as being conclusive evidence that her husband had survived death. I hope to have, within a week or two, conclusive evidence that Mrs. Houdini was never satisfied, that, in fact, the code was never broken. Mr. Woods, by the way, writes me the letter, tells me not to argue with the medium who is giving me a reading. Take a pencil and paper, says Mr. Woods, and write down what she says, and then wait and see. I ask Mr. Woods to examine the implications of that statement. I ask him to ask himself why any supernatural agency powerful enough to divine the future requires a thought or question to be committed to writing. Isn't it obvious, Mr. Woods, that a real prophet wouldn't need anything on paper? Mr. Woods mentions Dunninger, as being an excellent mind reader. The fact is that Dunninger is a most convincing and entertaining magician. But I am convinced that Dunninger is not a mind reader. If there is such a thing as telepathy, it's on the record as a very fitful and unreliable spark. The regular practice of mind reading is the regular practice of trickery and hanky-panky, nothing more. I made an offer last week, and I'll stand by that offer. If any man or woman claiming supernatural powers can produce phenomena which I cannot duplicate by natural means. He or she gets a television set with my warmest compliments. It may even be that a soothsayer or a mind reader might find television useful, at least during periods of relaxation. Well, here's a letter from somebody who signs himself C.W. Brooks with an address in Cleveland, Ohio. Quote, The favorite remark in all speeches today seems to be racial tolerance. Where do the advocates of racial tolerance expect it to stop? Where do the colored people expect it to stop? Just how far are we expected to go? Surely there must be some things the colored people don't want us to do. Please accept this question the way that it's meant a question that is in the minds of millions of fair, honest citizens. Can you, or the colored people get a fair answer for us, unquote. My dear Mr. Brooks, quite unconsciously, you make a distinction between citizens and the colored people, and it's just here that you'll find the fair answer to your question. The colored people want a fair chance to be citizens, too. They want to be full citizens, with the full rights of citizenship in a government founded on the proposition that all men are created equal. The fair and honest citizens of whom you speak may well count this opinion dangerous and radical. But the fathers of our American Revolution held it to be self-evident. Where, you ask, do the colored people expect it to stop, it being racial tolerance? Personally, I don't like the word tolerance. It strikes me as a patronizing word. I don't believe one race is something another race must tolerate. I don't think we have to put up with the colored people, for instance. I think we should live with them if we expect to live with ourselves. Just how far, you ask Mr. Brooks? Just how far are we expected to go? Citizen Brooks, we're expected to go as far as the Declaration of Independence. As far as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness described, if you will remember... As inalienable rights. Of course, it's more than possible that some of your fair and honest citizen friends will hear only the word alien in the word inalienable. These should be reminded that equality is an American idea and that the justification of inequality, by any means or any argument, is foreign and subversive. Citizen Brooks, I'm sending you at my expense a radio. I hope it brings you pleasure and profit. It's a good radio. But I can't vouch for what you'll hear on it. Certainly not many frank discussions on this matter. But you'll hear Marion Anderson, maybe, and Duke Ellington, if you're interested, a college professor or a scientist who happens to be a Negro. They may help to answer your question. Mind you, they're good Negroes. They know their place. And, Mr. Brooks, it's a place of high honor in American society. You'll also hear on some of the comedy programs on your radio... Jokes perpetuating the dangerous myth of the shiftless, lazy Rastus... ...good for nothing but shooting craps and eating watermelon. Surely, you say, there must be some things that the colored people don't want us to do. Mr. Brooks, that's the sort of thing they don't want us to do. Most of the colored people in this great rich land of ours... ...are badly housed, improperly educated, and undernourished. On top of all that misery, why make fun of them? I'm sure you don't want to, and I hope you can see... ...that you and I don't have to give up anything at all... ...in order to give all Americans... ...what they deserve. I am, sir,
2: your obedient servant. Now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. When you think over the fact that Lear has 16 years' experience... ...in building ultra-fine aircraft radios... ...you get some idea of what to expect in the Lear radios... ...designed and built for your home. There's a whole line of them. Capable, dependable, good-looking sets... ...styled with the beauty of tomorrow... ...and fashioned with a master craftsman's touch... Some of these sets will have television, some FM, short wave, and an entirely new remote tuning control that lets you select any station on the dial and adjust the volume from your easy chair across the room. And of course, some will have the new Lear sound-on-tape recording that we've been telling you about. With all their quality and with all their advanced features, Lear radios are not high in cost. There's one to meet every requirement and at every price the fine console combination radio phonograph with television, FM, recorder, and all sells for about $500. And at the other end of the line, there's the capable, good-looking table model for about $19.95. We know you want to hear these new Lear radios, and your Lear dealer will be glad to point out all their features and advantages. We'll tell you just when your nearby dealer will have them. And when you do hear them, we know that you're going to find that dollar for dollar... You get the most for your money when the radio you buy is a Lear. L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent those of Lear Incorporated.
0: I'd like to read you just a few lines from one more letter. Dear Mr. Wells. I was blinded five years ago. Nobody cared if I lived or died. Nobody cared if I starved to death. And one can starve to death in this land full of plenty. People for whom I've done many favors wouldn't even say hello when I met them on the street. Nobody has ever offered to read to me, and few people have ever visited me. Mr. Wells, there are people in this world who will steal from a blind man. Unquote. I hope the radio I'm sending, Mr. Haggerty, who wrote me this letter, will lighten that terrible darkness just a little and help his loneliness. We wish him everything that can be wished, and more. My time's up. Thanks for listening and let me come to call next time.
2: This is the American Broadcasting Company.